0: so those of you who don't know temple Beth shalom we had a fire here about two and a half years ago and uh we had to go down to the studs because it was more of the smoke damage that really took out the building this is a brand new space here this is our chapel uh, which we are so proud of and so excited to have and we have our brand new nair tamid which was just installed uh, about a week ago week and a half ago it is powered by the sun, as is the Ner Tamid in our sanctuary with a solar panel. Our new ark, our new lectern, those are showing up this week, God willing, on Tuesday. Uh, in time for us to do our dedication of the chapel on Saturday evening during Slichot. What's very special, by the way, about this place, well, there's lots of Gesundheit. There's a lot of special things, but especially directly in the center of the chapel here is our ganiza. So after the fire and all the prayer books were destroyed in um, our Tanakh, we, uh, we went ahead and as a congregation, we buried a, quite a few, but not all of them because we, there were a lot, so we had to take a lot up to hillside. But literally in the center of this chapel is our Genesha. So welcome. I am grateful that you are here. If you want to see a tour later on, if you haven't already been wandering, I will be here. Please make yourselves at home. That's what that's what this place is. We are grateful also to have this wonderful new partnership with the Irvine Hebrew Day School, and yeah, it's really exciting stuff going on here. Yes, Ezra. I know. So Ezra, yeah, couple years, buddy. All right. Um, I want to thank Ari uh, and all of you who are members of the Community Scholar Program for being here today and allowing us to host this program here but for the high holidays i am looking forward to being inspired and you know grab some nuggets right as we are approaching these high holidays and Slichot coming up next week so thank you and but i'm not going to introduce her i'm going to allow ari to do that so ari thank you very very much and i hope that this will be continued partnership together I hope so as well. all right so here you thank go you,
1: Thank you all for trekking to Northern Orange County. So um, for those of you who don't know CSP, it stands for Community Scholar Program, and this is our 16th year of programs in Orange County. Yes. I haven't actually counted, but I believe if you count all of our one month scholar programs over the last 15 years, we've hosted over 550 programs. So, if this is your first year, you've missed a lot, but uh, Grendel over there has been recording for the last few years, so if you go to iTunes, actually, and Tal Golan, one of our technology assistants back there, thank you, Tal, have been working on our CSP podcast, if you go to iTunes and type in OCCSP, you will find over 200 recordings from um, the past years and I hope you will enjoy them. And as we enter our 16th year, I want to thank you, the donors, because almost all of our funding for the last 15 years comes from you. So if you haven't had a chance to join CSP and become a member, we have materials outside as you checked in. I hope you will join us and support our endeavors. I want to thank Rabbi Cohen again for hosting us. at Bech Shalom, awesome building, awesome space. Thank you very much. I want to thank Jewish Federation of Family Services for their annual um, impact grant. We are applying again, so if you're on the committee, don't forget us this year, please. And I also, of course, I want to thank um, the Jewish Community uh, Foundation of Orange County for their generous grants and for inviting us to be part of the Creative Jewish Legacy. If you're not part of our uh, Legacy Circle, which includes the Wilners over here and many of you in the room, please talk to me after the program. Um, by joining us, you have to give us nothing now, and one day you just leave a gift to CSP so we can continue our programs um, in this community. And um, again, I wanted to thank everybody for donating to CSP. Let's see. We have a few upcoming programs I wanted to mention real quick. Um, on October 27th, Rabbi Brad Artson is coming to Orange County to talk about his relatively uh, recent book, Renewing the Process of Creation, A Jewish Integration of Science and Spirit. I hope you will join us. Um, on November 16th, Joellen Zalman will be speaking on Exodus, Leon Uris, Paul Newman, and American Zionism. And um, on November 30th, we have Udi Gorn from Israel talking about a walk of the land, the Israel National Trail. It's a a multimedia presentation. And then December 15th, we have a very interesting program if you're interested in Middle East politics. um, A history of US-Israel relations as seen through the Oval Office with uh, Professor Gil Troy. So um, that one may be at a very interesting location. So stay tuned, read the emails. If you're not on our email list, please um, give your name to our check-in team that you saw earlier or to me. Finally, I was going to say please turn off your phones that Rabbi Cohen did it, so let me do the quick introduction. Rabbi Susan Goldberg came to Wilshire Boulevard, um, which is located in Koreatown, in 2013, a fourth-generation Angelino, She is thrilled to continue her focus on renewing LA's Eastside Jewish community to help it once again be an active part of the multicultural beauty of uh, these neighborhoods. She brings the spiritual depth and intellectual rigor to her rabbinate. Um, she served as a revitalizing rabbi for temple Beth Israel of Highland Park and Eagle Rock and as rabbi in residence for the Eastside Jews, a project of the Silver Lake Independent JCC. Her leadership has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Lilith Magazine, Pasadena Magazine, the Jewish Journal, and on radio stations KPCC and KNX. She was ordained by the Academy for Jewish Religion, in which we have many graduates in the room. Raise your yeah. hand if you went to AJR. Yeah. There you go. And, and one... one Almost graduate, down there. And, and um, you should know that Ezra does, is a big supporter of the AJR football team. So those rabbis are nasty on the gridiron. I'm just telling you right AJR. Okay. Um, prior to becoming a rabbi, um, Rabbi Susan was a dancer and choreographer performing in venues all over the world and teaching, is it Laban or Lavan? Laban Movement Analysis, a number of universities, including Loyola Marymount, Cal State Long Beach, UCLA, and Cal Arts. She's also been committed. She's also been committed to cross-cultural dialogue and social justice. She served as a consultant to and designer, facilitator of workshops with such organizations as the ADL, the American Friends of Service Committee, and the National Conference for Community and Justice. And was co-director of the Human Relations Awareness Program for the Los Angeles Human Relations Commission. She was a co-founder of Arts in Action, a community arts and cultural and culture space in the MacArthur Park neighborhood of L.A. Currently, she's part of the Southern California Muslim Jewish Forum, the Interfaith Clergy Roundtable for the Department of Mental Health, and is the rabbi consultant for the groundbreaking television program *Transparent*, which we know will win at least how many Emmys tonight?
2: We don't know. We <laughs> <I> don't know. don't matter in art?
1: It should win awards, should. and even if it doesn't, if you haven't seen Transparent, the, it, the first year is already done. The second year starts? The second year's oh, done.
2: The year starts. third year.
1: Okay, so we are, we've only seen it's the first the year. year. They said there's a whole second year. Okay, it is a very interesting show. It has this incredible Jewish gestalt, um, and I urge you, it's a great show to watch. Um, So take a look at it and uh, see see if there's any winners. Uh, Most importantly, she dances in her living room with her husband and their three kids. We are very fortunate to have with us today Rabbi Susan Goldberg on the topic Ahava Love, the gift and challenge of living at the center of our tradition. And um, get ready to get prepared for the days of all. Thank you.
3: most difficult experiences sitting and listening to your bio, right? <laughs> Thank you all for having me here. It is a delight to be in Orange County. Part of the reason why it's a delight is that like, I never come here, and I apologize for that. Like, I, I know very little. I know I have wonderful colleagues here doing beautiful work, but I, uh, I don't often come to Orange County. So This is Santa Ana, is that right? Okay, so I can be specific. I came to Santa Ana. Um, yeah, it's really, really a delight, and what a time, right? We are right in the midst of Elul, right in the midst of a national election, right in the midst of such a big time in our world. What a morning, right? Waking up this morning, it's like New York and Minnesota, like what is happening? So much happening in our world. Big, big times. And where did Rabbi Cohen go? She slipped out. But thank you for hosting me here. This is, what an incredible chapel. This is really a beautiful room. Will some, like, uh, services happen here during the? What's that? We
0: already
3: had services. In here. Nice. It's beautiful. So in this, in this big time... As we move towards Elul, as we are in Elul, moving towards Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, part of the process for all of us who are um, rabbis and cantors in the preparing to be with our community is to sit with with what is alive in our world and what is alive in our hearts and what our tradition has to tell us about it. It always feels like a big um, a big time and a big responsibility to think about what all that might be. And for me at Rosh Hashanah, the place I begin to get centered is in the idea of malchut, which is what we are doing on Rosh Hashanah, right? Proclaiming kingship or sovereignty. And in the proclaiming of sovereignty, the place that makes the most sense to me uh, in an internal and deep place within the tradition is that sense of what are the larger values? What is at the root of our tradition? that we are proclaiming as sovereign, right? If one aspect of the divine, of that which is sovereignty, is the deepest values of our tradition, that is what we are proclaiming on Rosh Hashanah. This is the framework in which we are going to live our lives, that our people have lived our lives for all of these years, and we will moving forward. And how do we line up with that, right? How have I been this year? in reference to the biggest values, most fundamental values of our tradition, the ones that get repeated over and over and over in liturgy and in texts. Ahava, racham, rachamim, shalom, chesed, tzedek, right, if we go through and we pull out these major value qualities, where are we each year as we begin again? We proclaim them and say these are the values we live our life within. They are the values of our tradition. Where do we line up? How have we been this year? How can we shift our lives to line up with that? To me, that is malchut. That is what Rosh Hashanah asks us to do. Proclaim it loud and clear. What are the values that that are at the foundation of the Jewish tradition and how do those line up with how I am living and how my community is with each other, how I'm with my family, all of those aspects. Now, those are not necessarily the same values as our dominant culture. There is some overlap, but there are other values in our dominant culture around individualism and certain ideas of success um, that aren't always about kindness and compassion and gratitude and justice and the things that our tradition asserts. So part of Rosh Hashanah is when we, as Jews, which we do continuously, we say we are part of and separate from. We are very much a part of this nation and the fabric of who it is, and our city, and our counties, and our schools. And as Jews, we are separate from because we have this framework of values. When we say what is success in our lives and our families and our community and our relationship, it must line up with these values. That is what it is to be a Jew. We are part of, we are separate from, and we are held by a deeper set of values, the values of our tradition that we proclaim as sovereign over us. That is malchut. We proclaim these things to have sovereignty over us. So we must make sure that what we do is in line with them. And so if we draw out one of them, one of these deepest values, and for me that this year has been ahava, a year of drawing out and looking and sitting with this idea of love, ahava. At the center of our tradition, what does it challenge us to do and to be? So every time when we do our prayer together, right, we call to prayer with the Baruch Hu, And then, immediately following, before the Shema, we say a prayer about love. Ahava Rabba or ahavat olam. Ahava Rabba in the morning, ahavat olam at night. One or the other, it's the love slot. Right? (laughs) Morning and evening, love goes there. Then there's a Shema in the middle, and then love on the other side, the ve'ahavta. I call it with my students the love sandwich. (laughs) Ahava rabbah, and ahavat olam, the Shema at the center. And then I I told you I would move. I (laughs) promised you I would move away from the microphone. And then here on the other side, the Veil Hafta, love in action. So Ahava Rabbah, so beautiful, deep is your love for us, Adonai. Boundless your tender compassion. You taught our ancestors life-giving laws, the mitzvot, the chukim, the mishpatim, and you lovingly fulfill all these teachings. You have chosen the Jewish people in love. Torah itself is an act of love. This prayer of our rabbis proclaims that all of the tradition, all of it, the Mitzvot, the Torah, all of it is given to us as an act of love. It is loving. The whole tradition is offered as an act of love. So if it is offered to us, ahava, as an act of love, and if loving is at the core of what we've been given with the gift of Torah, then what is love? A word that we use all the time in our culture, meaning lots of different things. And usually used pretty loosely and often only used around romantic love, right? And yet love, the deepest values of love, are so, it's so much more full than simply romantic love. The theorist Bell Hook says about love and defining it that definitions are vital starting points for the imagination. A good definition marks our starting point and let us know where we want to end up. So with any of these deepest values, it's one thing to just proclaim them. It's another to say, but what is it deeply? When we dive into Ahava, what does it have to teach us? So in the defining of love, and in a Jewish defining of love, it is so important that love is both feeling and action. Feeling and action. And that's exactly what we see in Ahava Rabbah and then in the Ve'ahavta. In Ahava Rabbah, which means abundant love, or Ahavat T'olam, love everlasting, there is this beautiful, unconditional, never-let-you-down kind of love. Just you deserve it because you are. Just generously given, with grace, with chen we're given, this whole tradition in love. That's the very first step of love. It just feels good, and it's freely given. And then we have the Shema, and then after that is the Ve'ahavta. And the Ve'ahavta is love in action. These are the things you have to do in being loving. And in all the defining that I have been looking for in the last few months, in the many books and teachings that I have been sitting with. That seems to be the biggest distinction, that we get closest to the true point of love when we look at being loving, with that ing action in it. Loving gets us closest to a definition of love, a fundamental definition. That love is action, is an act of will is intentional acts of will. And in the this has been the the conversation throughout the generations. How do you command someone to love? And you shall love God with all your heart and all your soul. How do you command people to love? Can you? Can you command someone to love? Yes, Yes, you feel. Yes, Yes, you
2: can. And I'll tell you how. Okay. Because to love God is a, is a metaphoric statement, it doesn't really mean anything, particularly if you take the description of God of Keter, not God, but Keter, Keter. by mm-hmm. Elmoy, which is uh, something uh, strange, but if you are fulfilling the want, yes, if you are obligated, it is your act of love. Yes,
3: exactly. So that's loving you action. Have,
2: you have hinted yes. that to that.
3: Exactly. And that's exactly what the Ve'ah says. Very specifically, loving actions are what? A mezuzah, teaching it to your children, right? But to fill in, wrapping, to fill in these things, these are loving actions, right? So it goes from the metaphor of big love, of Rabbah and, ahava, and ahava Olam, to how do you command? You do the following things. Love in action. Loving. That's how we do it. OK, so in loving and actions, we have all that. And there's another piece in our definition. We're still just working towards a definition. And in the other piece of the definition of love needs to hold self, other, community, all in, all in one breath. Right? If it's too narrow of a definition, it won't work for us in the Jewish tradition. Because in one breath, we hold self, other, world. Right? Self-other world, all the time. So the definition that I want to offer to you that I am working with as a, defi- as a definition of love is that love is care, responsibility, and knowledge. And this comes from Eric Fromm's seminal book called The Art of Loving. And it's amazing how all the other theorists who I have read since he's written that book all reference his work. It's a small book if you ever want to read it. It's filled with mid-century assumptions, many of which I do not agree with. You will see what I mean when you start looking at them, at the book around gender and sexuality and these things. But the working definition of care, responsibility, and knowledge very much lines up in a Jewish defining of love because it holds self, other, and world and because it requires the loving actions. Care, responsibility, and knowledge. Now, I think everybody is probably at ease with care, right? Being an aspect of love. We care, we nurture, we take care of. But part of what a defining like this says is that care alone is not love. It's caring, but it's not love. So this next piece, responsibility, as an aspect of love. I'm working with a bat mitzvah student, um, you know, ahead of her Devar Torah that she's, I mean I work with lots of bat mitzvah and bar mitzvah students, but in this one in particular, she has the story of Jacob and Esau coming up in the book of Genesis and we'll be reading, she'll be chanting that in early December. And she reads these stories of Jacob and Esau, right? They're troubling. The twins, right? They come out. There's all of this family dysfunction around Isaac's giving, the, the dad giving the blessing, the wrong blessing to the wrong kid. And does this ring a bell? Okay, good. <laughs> I can go more deeply into the story, but I'm assuming you're familiar with this. And her takeaway from this was where's the responsibility Why did nobody take responsibility for what was happening? In every moment, she said, somebody could have said, this is not right. Especially if you break down that blessing moment. Mom, you can't be setting this up. Dad, you can't really think this is me. Dad going, what are you guys doing? This can't really be happening. Esau saying, what? Stop. Right? He tries. Esau tries to stop it, but it's too late. But everybody in that dynamic of the family had an opportunity to take responsibility for what was happening and nobody did. Right? Not loving moment. And so she said, I said, oh, okay, do you see that happening? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see that happening. She's like, you know how sometimes teenagers, like feeling upset about something, and rather than saying it, you just walk in your room and close your door? I said, yeah, 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 I know. Does that have happened to you? <laughs> yeah, I do that sometimes. So we designed a Musar assignment for her that she had to stop writing her bat mitzvah, um, Devar Torah, until she designed for herself six weeks of looking at what it would be to take responsibility for her feelings around what she needs to say to her parents or in her, in her school. And we've been meeting uh, every week during the six weeks to say, what's happening for her in, in looking at responsibility. She's had a whole event that happened at school where they got frustrated, and half the kids left, and half the kids stayed, and it wasn't fair, right? So every, all the aspects of her life where she could take, what it means to take responsibility. And that Musar um, characteristic, and what we call responsibility in Hebrew, is achreyut, Achrayut is responsibility. It can come from a root of achar, meaning after, or acher, meaning other. And they're both great, no matter which root it's from. achar means I'm responsible for this moment and the moment that comes after. So whatever actions I'm doing now, I have to take responsibility for now, and I can't pretend that I don't know that they'll be the after of whatever I do. And then acher is other, that I have to hold the other in mind, hold the other in my heart at all times. That's responsibility. There is a study that I want to share with you on loving that's called the Experimental Generation of Interpersonal Closeness Study. It's by a researcher named Arthur Aaron and others, and it was in the late 1990s. And the study was conducted as a way to see, can you build closeness and intimacy quickly between people who don't know each other so well? It uses 36 interview questions that each person asks of each other over a 45-minute period. And the idea is that you get increasingly more vulnerable in your sharing, and that mutual vulnerability, taking this risk to share with each other, is the most effective way to build closeness between two people. So here's the scientific language. One key pattern associated with the development of a close relationship among peers is sustained, escalating, reciprocal, personal self-disclosure. Love those words. It's like just continuously getting close with the other person is probably how I would say that. Um, And it worked remarkably well. It works remarkably well. It's been used in college settings amongst incoming students. It's been used between the police and the community members to build community connection. And yes, it's been used in the popular form of this for people to fall in love. You might have heard about this because it ended up in the New York Times, right? Because there was a journalist. I always like to say your, your mother or your like, grandmother might have sent this to you. It's this, uh, there was a New York Times writer who used this with a potential mate and they fell in love and it worked and it got a lot of um, press because of that. And you can watch her talk about the experience on TED Talks because she's she's, she's incredible to listen to. But the idea is in this, his definition of closeness, the study author was including other in the self an interconnectedness of self and other, which is exactly the idea of achrayut. I'm concluding you in my sense of who I am. You're in my heart. We're there together. The other is with me. That's achrayut. And that when you ask each other increasingly personal questions, your care, empathy and compassion for the other person means that you start to include them in your sense of your own self. What an amazing human capability that the more we get close to other people, we begin to include them in the sense of who we are as our own selves. Right, Ezra? We want to be included in our idea of ourselves. So this New York Times writer, the one who did fall in love, she said that um, the reason she thinks this has become so popular and for herself what it was is that this is what we want from love, to be seen and known and understood. Seen, known, and understood. So that's that third piece, knowledge. You can have care, taking care of, nurturing, caring for, responsibility, my sense of seeing you as a part of me, that I hold you inside of me, right? That's the interconnectedness, that's responsibility. But again, those two alone are not the full picture. We need knowledge. I think a lot of people are okay with the idea of care and responsibility, but why must you have knowledge? And we know as Jewish people, because knowledge is at the core of everything, right? This is how we worship knowledge. Are you kidding? Knowledge always has to be there. We study as a form of worship. We know that the deeper we know about ourselves and others, the more we become connected to the whole. Knowledge. So one of the aspects, I think, that um, when we think about families of origin that can be so painful is that sense that we, it wasn't okay for us to be fully seen known. That in many families of origin, parts of ourselves can be seen. And other parts of ourselves are told that, that's not the part of you we're going to see in this family. Put that part away. Often that happens between siblings. You're the this kid, okay? And you're the other kind of kid. You're the artistic one. You're the academic one. You're the athlete. You're the one who has a lot of feelings. You don't have many feelings. <laughs> you're the other kid, right? So part of when that happens in families is it means that we're, the totality of who we are is not fully known. And one of the great challenges of being a parent is being open to who our kid is in this moment, as well as who they are becoming. which is a beautiful aspect of knowledge. When we say, I want to know you, it means I want to know you for who you are in this moment and also recognize that I don't know who you're becoming. And that's also a beautiful challenge in, in, in our spouse or our close, in, significant other. Because we want to feel that we know everything about our spouse or our partner. I know you fully. And yet, then when they start to grow over time, because God willing, right, we're gonna grow over time. We hopefully won't be the same person who was under the chuppah 30, 40, 50 years later. We're growing. But a lot of what happens in relationships is, no, 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 I know you as that person over there. What do you mean you're gonna keep growing? So the idea of love around knowledge is, I'm open to who you are now, and I'm open to who you will be becoming over all these years, even if it surprises me, even if it's aspects of you I never expected, that I will be open to continuously learning, continuous new knowledge. So when I sat with this um, definition, care, responsibility, and knowledge, and I thought back in my own life, and I challenged myself to think about a time outside of my family that I felt love, loving for the first time. And I thought about a friendship that I had with my best friend. I transferred to her school when I was in fourth grade. And then by sixth grade, we had become very close. And we would talk like constantly, all the time during the day. When we were separated by seat, we had to write notes. And then after school, we would go and do ballet class together three times a week. So we were together a lot. And this one day, she asked me, You know your mom's friend, Kay, who's over at the house a lot? Is she your mother's best friend? And on the day she asked me, I completely avoided the question. I didn't answer. I was like, oh, yeah, it's almost time for ballet. We should probably go change our clothes. Because Kay was not my mother's best friend. She was my mother's partner. My mother is a lesbian, and I like to say I grew up before there were rainbow balloons and picnics. I, there were no other, I mean, I, I was not around other families with gay parents. And I was terrified of anybody knowing this. And I worked hard to, to keep my world protected from anybody finding out. I didn't want there to be uh, any judgment about my family being not as good. I didn't want there to be any judgment about my mother. And honestly, I was also worried about safety. Um, because it was a, a violent time. It still is a violent time. Um, not so much for gay people in the way that it was, but certainly for transgender people. The amount of violence is astounding. Walking down the street is a brave act if you 're a transgender person, because you could and often are violently attacked. These things would always come up when we were at that time, that was the case for um, gay and lesbian people. So I often was worried that my mother would be attacked, and I just didn't want, I didn 't want anybody to know. My brother, much more outward, would say to my mom. You can't wear that. Everybody will know." You know, things like that. I never said anything. And I think on the outside, I looked like I was, everything was fine. And I was very proud of my family and who we were. I knew there was nothing wrong with us, but I was extremely clear that the outside world didn't think the same. But then she asked me that question directly, and I realized I had never said it out loud. And I didn't know if I could, and yet when I thought about loving, in this definition all these years later, about care, responsibility, and knowledge, I realized why I knew in that moment all those years ago that I had to tell her. Because she want, I, I wanted to be fully known by her. It was my first experience of being loved by someone. She was my best friend. We had so much in common. We spent so much time together. I felt care for her. I certainly felt responsibility for her. I knew she felt it for me. But I realized that there was an aspect of myself that I wasn't in that very core aspect that I wasn't, until that point, I, I, I wasn't known. And so I remember deciding I got to tell her. I got to say it out loud. And this is like, this is my, I have to tell her. And I think also the responsibility overrode. I think I was a kid who was like, she asked me a direct question. I can't lie. And I don't even know if after, I mean, she wasn't thinking about it as much. She probably forgot after that, but I was obsessed with it. So I remember we had a long walk from the bus to my house at the end of school. And I told her at the beginning, at, at the beginning of the walk, I have something to tell you. I'm really scared about telling you, but I've got to tell you. This was like a 20 minute walk. And for 20 minutes I pretty much said, I gotta tell you, I'm really scared. And she was freaking out. What could it be? What's happening, you know? Especially for 12 and a half year olds who like, things are dramatic. What could it be, you hate me, you, you know. She kept guessing, no, no, it's none of those things. And finally, like a block away from our house, I stopped, I said, okay, I'm gonna tell you right now. Kay's not my mother's best friend, she's her lover, and they're partners, and my mom's gay. And she was like, is is that all? <laughs> is that the whole thing? I was like, yeah. She was like, okay. And that was it for her. But it was huge for me. It changed my whole world. It meant that somebody in my life could fully see me. And the fact that she didn't judge or run away or go screaming taught me that there was a way that humans can fully care for each other and be seen and known. So this idea that um, a commitment to knowledge, it's a, it's a profound practice to commit to being fully seen and known, and it also means that we have to take the risk to share with those we care about. Right? It's on both ends. We have to communicate with those we love, that I want to see you and know you, even if there are parts of you that might be hard. I want to see you and I want to know you fully. And that also means that we have to share it. Because sometimes I think we decide on behalf of the other person, these are parts of me you don't want to see, when really they may want to and may be longing to. And that is certainly true about our country at this time. I think part of what happens in an election year is we get surprised by currents that are in our country that we didn't know were there. Right? Oh my goodness, who knew about some of these things? And so one reaction is to go, well those people are just crazy, they are different than me and they feel different than me and they are crazy, they are in a different country. This is not my country that they're in. Well, it turns out we're all in the same country. <laughs> and, and, and it turns out this experience is real for them, for whoever it is that they're, what they're feeling. And part of what I think that we that the tradition is telling us and rooting it in love, care, responsibility, and knowledge, is that we have to commit to learning about where this stuff comes from. Because it's easy, it's too simple to say, oh, that's just me, yeah, just Or to say to another person, I just don't want to know that part of you. Put that away. But when we go, oh, wow, I had no idea this was such a force. Where is this coming from? What is this about? What if I slowed down and learned about it? What would it tell me? And I think it's that commitment to knowledge that then also helps us figure out how to move, how to act. When the um, homeless count came out in L.A., You know, we where all the homeless people, um, one late night people go out and count, and the numbers just were astounding. More than people knew are living on the streets of Los Angeles, I think it's the biggest, one of the biggest shandas around, that there are that many people in the city of angels living on the streets. I mean, you know, it's like more than anywhere in LA. And there's a group of us as clergy who felt like, well, we can't just say, oh, wow, I read that article, how nice, you know, but that knowledge then pushes us, right, if we're gonna be loving, that responsibility and knowledge and care. And so there's been a whole variety of things that the faith community is doing in LA to respond to it. And part of the people were trying to figure out, you know, oh, but how do you do this? And we have to work with the city. And, we ha-. and one of the um, faith leaders in our community said, no, I'm just going to, it's winter, I'm just going to open up my church and have people sleep here. It feels like to him it was like, people need a place to stay, let's just do it. So the Episcopal Church in Highland Park, close in my neighborhood, did. Uh, others of us in the community showed up each night with food, we had sleeping bags and pillows. And it was sort of one of the things where the city council person says, we just need like three more months, or maybe six more months to get the permits for all that. And his Father Prescott said, no, okay, well, it's my church, so I'm opening the doors and saying that people can sleep. A man uh, moved by love, care, responsibility, and in the Temple Waringham at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, like many temples around the country, we had abandoned the location, right, and moved to the suburbs, or moved to other parts of LA, in the case of LA. So we were in Wilshire Boule- on Wilshire Boulevard, which at a moment was the western edge of the city, but at that time, that was, that was sort of the, it was no longer the western edge, and people went west, west, west into the valley. Have any of you been there? Huge edifice. Beautiful building. You are all welcome to come and visit us there. Incredible edifice.
0: But literally, the
3: ceiling started falling down. A huge chunk of the ceiling fell down in the middle of the night. So they could say the temple had this choice: we're in the we're on the west side. They already had opened a west side campus that was totally thriving—elementary school, nursery school, totally thriving community. They could have just uh, they I and mean, they were given offers to sell the big edifice in the middle of town. And not far from us is another. Uh, the historic Sinai temple that was sold and is a church on 4th and New Hampshire. And you can still see the Star of David covered by the cross. <laughs> um, and so that was an option around selling. And so the community had to go through, I would say, a real accounting of their souls, a real cheshbon hanefesh around this. What does it mean? What does it mean to leave? What does it mean to stay? Um, what would it mean to recommit? So the choice was made to stay, and... Part of that is demographics are changing, and Jews are moving back to the east side. My family has never left, but Jews are now rejoining us. And the choice was made to refurbish the sanctuary. But at the same time, the choice was made at the same time that they would not raise money for the sanctuary unless they raised something, money also, to build a structure for the community. So those were done together, and the sanctuary was rebuilt, and a block-long social service center called the Karsh Family Social Service Center opened this past spring with eye care, low-cost eye care, dental care, mental health services, and legal services operating for the community. It's called Koreatown, but it's 65% Latino. So it's first arrival immigrants, from Central America and Mexico, as well as Koreans and other Asian Americans. We also have a a weekly uh, food pantry that has now run out of that space. That's been going on forever. But the community said, which I think is a a real beautiful statement on behalf of the Jewish community, we're moving back into this temple, but we also know who is around. We did the research. And in fact, on that knowledge piece, they, they came in and they said, first we're gonna build a medical clinic. And the low-cost medical clinic across the street said, hi, we're already here. (laughs) And there's a clinic over there and there's a clinic over there. But you know what we don't have? Nobody can get eye care and dental care. You can get an eye check, but nobody has glasses. So you can be told you need glasses but not be able to afford them. So in the clinic, we have glasses as well as eye care, and dental care is like huge, right? It's really hard to get dental care. So that has just opened up. And that came out of a process of saying, we're recommitting to the neighborhood. What's the space around care, responsibility, and knowledge? So with that, I want to leave you around love, around Ahava Rabbah, a love in great abundance. May you, at this high holiday time, spend some time reflecting Where is love in my life between the interpersonal relationships in my world and my community? Where am I with my care responsibility and knowledge towards myself as well as the people in my life? Love in great abundance. When we put love at the center of our lives, it will put us sometimes outside of the values of dominant culture, but absolutely at the center of the Jewish tradition. All awakening to love is spiritual awakening, says Belchox. Ahava Rabbah, love in great abundance. May this be a year where you experience love in great abundance. May it be a year where you are moved to be loving, to care, and hold with responsibility, and be open to knowledge, about the clo- those closest to you, about your community, about your world, and about yourself. May this year be a year of love. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, since we have our,
1: our here. We thought we'd open up, and if people have questions, um,
2: take the opportunity to ask anything, right? Anything. Anything. <laughs> anything. Maybe. <laughs> I don't have a question, but I... Uh, when my grandchildren say I love you, I call them mom, L-U-N. and they said, what's wrong love you more? <laughs> I don't want to put a, a negative slant on what you said, but I'm curious where does, in, in the trio of caring and um, responsibility and knowledge, and I have my own ideas, but where would you put in the addressing of evil in the world mm-hmm. and of, um, of combating values that may be contrary to ours or to an environment of love. Um, it's nice to, to think in terms of kumbaya and everything, but there, there are issues that need to be addressed as far as evil. And it was Absolutely. Awesome. And I don't think love
3: is kumbaya. That's part of what I want to push back really hard on you because I think care, responsibility, and knowledge is such fun work. And it's not easy. When you just say, oh, okay, we want to have love. That's why I think the depth of saying, how do we care, take responsibility, and move with knowledge to change things? I think that that is the pathway. Whether it's confronting evil or people whose values are different than ours, we stay close to our own values but we fight hard to make change in the world based on our care, responsibility, and knowledge for each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very hard work. It's hard work to say I'm responsible for you even though we're different than each other. Yeah.
2: Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I, I see it as falling heavily under the responsibility aspect of yes. well, First, you have to care enough to want to combat evil, And then yes. secondly, you have to determine We have the responsibility to do it. Yep,
3: and that's very, very Jewish, right? Not now when, not us who. Absolutely. And though the knowledge piece is really important because I think what happens sometimes when we go out to fight evil is we don't fully understand what it is, right? I mean, I think people make blanket statements around, oh, you're just evil, or you're just crazy, or you're just whatever you want to say, racist, homophobic. But if we can also look at, there are some real reasons um, why racism is emerging right now, in, in a way, and fo and there's reasons for it. And I think it's really important and incumbent upon us to look at why. Because I think it makes the actions that we take smarter and more effective. Um, and one of the things that I think we need is loving, smart, effective action. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes? What can we do to help people bring out love forward over fear? Love
2: over fear. It seems like you, you were just mentioning we have a real problem right now with xenophobia. Yeah. We have a refugee crisis that's happening around the world. And Jews are, I don't think we're stepping up like we should given
1: the, uh, the, the crisis these poor refugees. And I think it has to be based in fear uh, you know, and xenophobia. And how can we help people become, how can we people ha- help people see the
2: love they have been bury the fear.
1: Yeah, well, I think
3: part of it is not burying it, it's naming it, right? And that's that knowledge piece, right? If, if, if we just say, if we stay on a simple level, and just say, oh, I just don't like that, or I don't trust that person right? But if we get underneath, what's going on? I think sometimes people just to be able to say, I'm afraid, okay, well, what are you afraid of exactly?
2: Right? helps us to get at what it is.
3: Because sometimes people's fears, are based on things that are not grounded, and sometimes the some people's fears are based on something that is grounded. So I think if we can address the fear directly, part of what happens is just free-floating fear that's never named. Right? It's named as sort of, it's drawn on in sound and but not named directly. You heard in my bio that I've done a lot of cross-cultural dialogue work, and I've done a lot of work... Um, back before I used to work with white supremacist youth, and one of the pieces that is so important is is around really naming it, right? Because often when you you ask somebody to, to draw out the layers, they're aware that they don't know exactly what they're standing on, right? It's just been told, well, this is how it is. Well, what's how it is? And how did we get there? Why do you think that's happening? Has that ever happened to you? You know, right, that the willingness to engage in a dialogue on a deeper level of knowledge based on, I think a lot of people just hit fear and stop, right? If we hit fear and stop, we're in trouble. We gotta hit fear and then keep in it, keep unlayering it. And I think those are the conversations we need to have with each other. When somebody says, well, aren't afraid? Of what exactly? What does that fear look like? Yeah. I guess to follow up on his question, how do we get those conversations started? Do you have to have, you know, call people together? That's part of, one part. and The other yeah. part was the care, responsibility, and knowledge. Do they go in that order, or can they be in any order? Oh, I think they're all, all at once. Mm-hmm. Not in an order, but how do you get conversations started? Uh, oh boy, I'm not a good person to ask. My kids would say, how do you get loud not to start a
1: conversation? <laughs> I think,
3: I think there's different conversations. I think there's conversations with people you know and care about to not be afraid to start the conversations. Um, I
0: think there's conversations
3: with strangers. I think, you know, when we hear comments, take a breath and say, can I ask you about that? I guess I have some questions. The best strategy around all of this is to always ask questions first of each other because that builds our sense of knowledge around what the other person is experiencing. I always begin with asking questions, right? Which is with why my kids are like, oh my god, Mom, we're in the grocery store. I know, but I heard a comment when I just ask them what they're feeling and thinking right now. Right now. But it is that willingness to take a risk of heart and say, Can I I'm just curious about what you're feeling and thinking right now? Taking the risk. Taking the risk. That's the responsibility. It's piece. Very tough. It is. It's very yeah. Tough.
2: Well I think uh, personally, I, talking about the immigrant situation,
3: I think you have to take the initiative. I wrote to my congressman, and I wrote to the president, and I just—I didn't—I made a speech, and I made it based on just love. We're a—we're a nation of immigrants. We—we we were immigrants. Your parents, your grandparents. And how can you watch the news every night and see these Syrian children, what they're being murdered, and, and everything that's going on there, and not want to do something about it? I—I I personally can't go to Syria. But I can let my congressperson know, it all revolves around money, right? If they come here, they need housing, they need a, a start, they need jobs, they need everything that our parents' grandparents needed. So it starts with our congresspeople. I want to say also that one of the things that that has happened now, and I don't want to assume everybody has the same beliefs in here, but one of the things that I've noticed is happening in our culture because all of our information is curated for us. You all know that, right? (laughs) Whenever you go on the Internet, it's curated for you. So you're not going to hear other opinions because you don't know that. So by by the way you do searches... The software is now very sophisticated to only share with you information that they think that you're interested in seeing. So that means that a whole other dialogue that's going on in the country, we never get to see because we don't make those searches on our search engines. So that means that the knowledge that we have of people who have different, I don't know if you heard this, a study came out recently about parents not wanting their kids to date somebody with different political views, it's something like 70%. It's like way above any other thing now, right? And part of it is we only have conversations with each other, or with people who feel exactly the same thing. The the challenge, and I would say, if we really want to take responsibility for these big problems in our world, is to say, I want to get together a group of people that might be half people who think like me and half who don't, and let's try and get into this conversation about what would care, responsibility, and knowledge look like. Because I think that part of what is happening is that we, some people only talk to some people, and these people only talk, and now we're having like these parallel universes, right? That's why we get shocked when we see other things, because we never see the other information that's around us. So how can we dialogue with people? That's real responsibility. And when I've told people that statistic, they, that people go, you don't want, I don't want my kid to date <laughs> I mean, it's... That's how people, that's how now, how fractured we're becoming in our information with each other. Um, so I would wonder if you have even one person who you're close to who really do, does have a different political belief than you around a whole variety of issues, and how to do that, how to have those conversations. Because I really do think that we need a more loving, compassionate country, but we got to all get there together because um, we, we won't get there if it's, I mean... On some levels, some things can just be pushed through, I suppose, but there's other levels in which we gotta have these deeper conversations with each other about how to have a loving society and world, but we've gotta talk to
1: each other about it. So, Yeah. I think we have time for just the last three. So I'm gonna reserve the last one. Okay. One over there, and then Alita, question, and then we'll wrap up. Well, one of the things that I
2: think uh, addresses what you're talking about, reaching mm-hmm. out, is I seen a video that you made, yeah. Specifically targeting very young people. Yeah. Um, maybe demographic of 12 to 16. that the idea of actively reaching out to where people are congregating and getting that message across, and it was a
0: very very effective um, view without without being you know telling but showing.
3: The one with the imam and the priesthood myself. Yeah, that was on Buzzfeed. Buzzfeed. Yeah, Buzzfeed. yeah. Buzzfeed. I were I've done a couple of things with Buzzfeed because I think that these internet sites. Um, a lot of yep, yes, teenagers, but also um, up till the 20s, people are getting a lot of information, and there's not really any images of interfaith um, conversations that go well <laughs> ever. And and uh, some of the comments that came up from that video, it was. everybody so says, "Don't read the comments," but I'm a glutton no. so I read them like every day. Cause of, video was seen by many, many, many people. And some of the comments were, the the main theme was, this was nice, but this never happens. Or they're too kind to each other. And that's just not real. Rather than the fact that our wisdom traditions are different, but at their core, there's a lot of connection between us. Um, So thank you. Yeah,
2: thank you for that. I was going to say, the tricky thing for us, I think, as Jews, is the same kinds of conflicts that we might anticipate and expect in interfaith situations, we have interfaith. Absolutely.
3: Because <laughs> I, and I think
2: that maybe there is a, a, a non-realistic expectation that Jews are all going to feel the same way yeah, about no, all these issues. No when we really aren't. We are and it seems yeah. trickier, I think, for us to accept each other yeah. as Jews with differing opinions than we might be at accepting someone who's of another faith, Say, oh, you know, they're of another faith, so we should expect that. <laughs> and maybe we don't expect that amongst ourselves, but there is definitely a tension, especially, I think, brought out by the world situation of the Im- immigration crisis and all of that. and. And as Jews, I think maybe this year, as we go into the High Holy Gates, we do need to think about how do we accept one another? Yes, it's beautiful. Yeah, and I think it came back
3: to, you had, I think you were towards the beginning of your question when you had asked a question about Jewish people. how we are talking to each other about these issues. I think that, just to say that there's a real major historical shift that's happening in the Jewish community that we've never been in this situation before, and it's a lot of what went in, that we talk a lot about at our temple, being in a position to create a block law and social service center, and to do that for folks who are primarily not gonna be Jewish. Right? I mean, before it was like build those community centers because we had nowhere to go because nobody's going to take care of us because we're Jewish. So we got to take care of each other, right? I mean, that's why synagogues were at the center of Jewish life because you didn't just go there to pray. You went there for social, you went there for your, your needs if you were hungry and you needed food, all of those things. It's a major shift now in the American Jewish community that we have the ability um, and are not just struggling to survive, to turn outside and get taking care of others. Now, for a long time, Jewish people have been taking care of others, but it's it, it's a self-perception. We're in the midst of a change of self-perception. My kids generation, we have to explain anti-Semitism. Explaining anti-Semitism is very different than experiencing. And so it's a, that's a profound change. And so what is it gonna look like to have, to move from love, care, responsibility, and knowledge, to have compassion and empathy for other people's experience, as our Jewish experience in the United States is changing so, over these you know, years, has changed so profoundly. And I think these are the common conversations we need to have. And is why one example is the temple saying we're not just gonna make the temple look pretty, we're gonna build this social service center, but that came out of a different kind of conversation. Also about how we want to be perceived, quite honestly. That's in there too. Right? How we want to take care of each other, and also how we want the community to see us as Jewish people. Yeah.
1: So my question is somewhat related, but it goes to Transparency <coughs> yes. and what that show has done for transgender, and then yeah. from yeah. your perspective, since you are the been a consultant. Yeah. Why does why is it so Jewish or is it Jewish and what why is that an important element? Because I assume, as we talked about before, that most of the viewers maybe I'm wrong are not Jewish, and so but it's a very Jewish show. Yeah. Not necessarily. So it's right. right. It's based
3: on a real story, which yeah. is why the family is Jewish because it's about a Jewish family. Right. This is their real story. Right. a
1: Congregant of yours who's the uh,
3: a friend? Right. Yeah, a friend, colleague. Yeah, and I'm a rabbi. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's her family. She, um, her father, and she was an adult, um, came out to her as being transgender. Um, and so along the way, because she's an artist, she was going to make art out of her life. Now it's not the exact same situation. She, uh, you know, it's not. There aren't three kids in the family. It's not. It's not the exact. And they didn't live in L.A. She grew up in the Midwest. But the idea is based on her own family, and so for her, as somebody for whom her Jewishness is very central to who she is, she wasn't going to do a story about based on her family and not have it be Jewish. Um, I think one of the things that's exciting about *Transparent* is that it it gives folks who don't have any other images of Jews when they think Jews, they they don't think of a modern Jewish family in Los Angeles, right? The, the mostly the images of Jews, especially doing Jewish ritual are always orthodox. Certainly not a woman rabbi, right? Like, um, I don't know about you, Heidi, but it it, it stuns me that every non-Jewish person, their first thing is like, Oh, Oh, I didn't know women can be (laughs) rabbi. It's like stunning. I
0: know. Sometimes I think, really? You don't have Jewish
3: friends? They didn't tell you? (laughs) Um, uh, But there is, um, so to have rituals, and a part of, um, of a show in which um, there are, it shows that there's a, a mu- multiplicity of Jewish experience in the world. Um, they are difficult characters. You're not supposed to always always like them, right? It's a, it's a show that's very complicated. That's how family is. <laughs> Um, but uh, the, for her and for um, for all of us involved, the Jewish aspects are really important. You know, I, 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 I sit, the writers and I sit and study Torah totally together to work on episodes. We uh, we talk about the spiritual meaning of the holidays. We usually there's a couple of spiritual themes that are running through each season. Um, so it's very integrated into what the, into the process. What is it? Amazon. 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 Yes.
1: And, uh And what kind what kind of, what kind of okay. response are you getting? you hear the response that the writers get to their episodes, or like those notes yeah. that you're talking about that you've seen?
3: Yeah, they're, they're overwhelmingly positive. There, there are other things. I mean, there's always, there's other um, comments that, that come up, too, within the transgender community, within the Jewish I mean, community. Um, one of the things that changed between season one and season two, for example, is that there was no writer in the writers room who was transgender in the season one. And and that was remedied in season two and in season three. Um, so there are there is feedback that does get heard um, and does affect the show. Um, but yeah, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Okay, I'm you, um,
2: you want to have one last and that, question, okay. and then yes. we've got to wrap up. But uh, I understand that antisemitism um, is coming back. And what's going on the universities it's awful as far as that goes. Yeah, so I'll say
3: a couple of t- things to that. Um, There is a lot of tension on university campuses around Israel, and it's a much more complicated situation than we often hear. I've had the chance in the last um, several months, I sat with the Hillel director at UCLA. Um, I sat with the woman who was out in, where was the one that got all that attention, Vassar, right? Um, And they were the ones there.
2: And their
3: explanation of what happened was entirely different than what I've heard in the media. To them, the the tensions have been real and the growing and learning has been real. The Hillel director in LA has said UCLA is a wonderful place for Jewish students to come and that these issues, he thinks that they are, as a campus, dealing with them in really important ways. So I think, yes, there's a tremendous tension around Israel. We have to support our young people in having these conversations. Um, yes and no, yes and no. I think that it is, it, I don't think it's entirely conflated, but yes, those things are for a lot of people together. Yeah, but anti-Semitism in terms of being, hi- t- being told you're not gonna be hired because you're a Jew, you can't come to the school because you're Jewish, or these kind of structural anti-Semitic issues that are, thank God, our kids don't have to deal with in the same way that previous generations That was what I was meaning by structural anti-Semitism. And yes, there is tension on campuses, yeah.
1: I think we're gonna finish here, so I wanna thank you very much.
3: Thank you so much.